Welcome to Autumn and Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today we travel to Wonthaggy, the home of the miners' strike in the 1930s, to the present-day activist Jessica Harrison and her work with the community. Introducing Dr Randy Irwin as the new editor of the Australia Western Sahara Association e-bulletin with the latest news from Western Sahara, synthetic biology and much more from Bob Phelps, the director of the Gene Ethics Network, the independent international inquiry into human rights abuses in the Philippines presents its first findings in two weeks to the UN Human Rights Council. I'll be speaking with the chair of that inquiry, Peter Murphy. But we're back to normal with Mr Kevin Healy and his week that was. A week, Jane, listener, when ASIC, the so-called caring business class watchdog, which sadly has difficulty digesting its role due to its lack of teeth and or reluctance to use them, has come up with an inspired idea to nail corporate crooks. Not your corporate crooks, isn't the tautology. ASIC will give immunity from prosecution to the first person reporting corporate crime in an organisation, hoping this will lead to a stampede hoping in turn to be the first, and bad luck for the second if someone got in before her or him, the get-out-of-jail-free card will apply to offences like rigging insider trading and dishonest conduct in the course of carrying on a financial services business, it said, leading to a predictable response from the caring business class taking their proper and justified complaints to government. Criminalising market rigging insider trading and dishonest conduct would make it impossible to carry on a financial services business, they made a strong argument. The issue that has the Canberra Press Gallery peeing themselves with excitement is who knew what and when, with the only certainty being that Big Supremo scuttled them more lash son, a.k.a. Scummo, knew absolutely nothing at any time which, being the norm, doesn't seem worth getting too excited about, but the Minister for being put on the defensive knew one day and didn't know the next day and then wasn't sure whether she knew or not the next day, but whatever she didn't know, she most definitely didn't share with Scuttle them, before heading into hospital looking as fit as as the trillion-dollar submarine contract she also doesn't seem to know too much about. While the Minister for Keeping Us Secure and Concentration Camps raised a wire and sink the boats, Constable Peter Duffer said he knew, but most definitely, most definitely did not tell Scuttlebem what he knew. Which may just come down to the two he didn't know what he knew as, as in didn't comprehend. Yes, why didn't you tell Scuttlebem? Because it was like, you know, a, a sensitive matter. So Scuttlebeam shouldn't know about sensitive matters. It makes it easier to, you know, adopt the principle of, like, you know, denial. Uh, So is the fact that no one tells Scuttlebeam anything the reason he knows nothing. Uh, uh, like, you know, could you like, uh, could you like say that again? And if you've been wondering what all those street parties are about, listener, it's the unemployed whooping it up. 
party after party, popping the corks and celebrating their newfound wealth. An extra $3 a day. Well, more correctly, that they'll be $3 a day better off than they would have been after the government cuts back their job seeker allowance in a few weeks. Dole bludgers whooping it up in the streets while the responsible people in this society, like company directors for instance, are being chauffeured past on their way to another hard day slaving in their sundry and numerous boardrooms, and righteously decrying the obvious fact that this $3 extra under, under and below, what they're now getting, is a further disincentive for these leeches on the public purse to go out and get a job. As the government points out, the best form of welfare is a job, the very raison d'etre of human existence, working happily for a caring employer who in turn cares so maternally stroke fraternally for her, his, its happy little wage slaves. Now, a blatant attack on Trublowati's sovereignty, and to make it worse from the very determinant of what our sovereignty is, Yes, how dare the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world criticise True Blue over our climate change, if there is such a thing, policy, when we're reaching our targets in a canter. It's none of their bloody business, other than they dictate what our business is. Yet the U.S. of climate change person John Caring for Business accused True Blue of undermining efforts to address climate change, if there is, at international talk fests when scuttled them has made it clear we will address climate change our way, the true blue Aussie way, with technology like coal-fired power stations and gas plants and fracking and clean, beautiful nuclear power plants if former hayseed and cheap shit party supremo brackets disgraced, our old mate Barnacle gets his way. We mentioned last week Barnacle has a motion before Parliament calling for the Renewable Energy Funding Body to fund a new state-of-the-art coal-fired power station and a nuclear power plant, which makes a lot of fracking sense, but also makes it sensible for SpaceX to sort out that Mars problem we also talked about as soon as possible, because we're going to need a new planet any time now. Also mentioned last week, mining and pastoral filthy rich of the filthy rich Twitty mine the forest, brackets unless it's on my vast property, Twitty's commitment to the indigenous people on whose land is his vast property. Well, stroke of bad luck. The Western Australian government is investigating a possible breach of the Aboriginal Heritage Act by Twitty in clearing a sensitive site at a place called um, Wheelamurra Creek. But we can't blame Twitty. Elders were supposed to attend on February 22 to ensure no disruption of secret sites and artefacts, as ordered by the permit authority, but, quote, a manual transcription error by Fortescue staff meant they did the work on February 1 with no elders present to ensure they did not damage sacred sites. A manual transcription error, a small mistake anyone could make. And any destruction of First Peoples sites would have been an inadvertent mistake anyone could make. 
and what thanks does poor Twitty get for this small mistake? OK, OK, it probably made him filthy richer, but the Eastern Garuma Aboriginal Corporation had the audacity to suggest... We don't expect the mining industry's poor behaviour to change until such time as the government and the public start to hold mining companies to account. Bloody upstarts getting in the way of progress. Suppose one way to avoid little matters like manual transcription errors could be to, dare we say it, just don't dig up the place in the first place. Or at least, if they must dig up the place because there's profit in them, the secret sites, dare we say it again, make sure the staff digging up the site know they must have elders with them to protect as much as they can protect from the voracious machinery. And indeed, we asked Twitty why the staff directly involved weren't made aware of this requirement. Twitty, we asked, why weren't the staff directly involved made aware of this requirement? We had to balance the environmental consideration against the financial consideration. A fine balance we great entrepreneurs must get right and struggle to get right quite regularly. In this case, the opportunity to keep the manual transcription error excuse up our sleeves. And Twitty assured us this small mistake did nothing to diminish his commitment to Indigenous people. And well, when he puts it that way, puts it so logically, it makes the Aboriginal Corporation objections even more objectionable. Twitty was doing what's best for his company and therefore the country for all of us, including those Indigenous complainants. Let's hope, listener, the government sees it that way and doesn't burden poor Twitty with a small fine of some sort for a little bit of manual transcription error destruction. This Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission into the Crook Casino, poor Jamie, poor, poor Jamie, <laughs> isn't schadenfreude just so enjoyable? Couldn't happen to a nicer. Our only comment, given the New South Wales finding of criminality and malfeasance was largely based on the Melbourne Casino, why do we need a repeat performance? The forensic probing by the NSW inquiry did it for us. But if we do, generated by that criminality and malfeasance, why shouldn't this is a ridiculous thought, listener. But seeing Her Most Gracious Majesty's commissions with a judge, with a couple of more senior silks as counsel assisting with matching juniors and instructing solicitors, and a whole administrative structure costs the public purse millions and millions, ridiculous thought, but... Given the criminality and malfeasance and boardroom incompetence is already patent and why the government has been dragged kicking and screaming, why shouldn't Jamie and the Crook Casino team meet those full multi-million costs rather than the public purse? Given the subject of the commission's investigations, legal costs will also be millions. They'll have to rip off a few more customers, not, not rip off, customers having fun, 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 enjoying themselves, losing their hard-earned. After all, an exclusive casino license protected from competition by law is like owning your own private mint. 
Back in the mists of time, then-State Big Supremo Joan Kerner appointed retired Supreme Court Beak Xavier Connor to investigate whether we should have a casino, which he strongly recommended against on the grounds that, hard to believe, casinos attract criminal elements. Who would have thought? But then along came Jeff Foot in mouth, and the rest is history. With the righteously distressed No Hypocrisy Award of the Week to Jeff for maintaining his foot in mouth reputation, now attacking the current state government for allowing all this criminality to happen. Jeff, your righteously distressed No Hypocrisy Award is on the way. Oh, and finally, given the public purse's reliance on the gambling dollar, what chance the Crook Casino losing its license altogether? Indeed, some cynics keep wondering why the state has been so reluctant to and, uh, act against or even acknowledge all this criminality and malfeasance and incompetence for so long. Why it took a New South Wales inquiry to uncover what's been happening in Victoria. Thank goodness we're not cynical, listener. But I'll leave us pondering that thought. Good afternoon. And it's great to have him back on Tuesday home time, Mr. Kevin Healy. Featuring world-changing documentaries aimed at inspiring a better world, this year's Transitions Film Festival covers themes of art, activism, climate change, social innovation, epic architecture and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, available virtually from February the 26th to March the 15th online and nationwide. The Transitions Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Where the rolling hills of South Gippsland reach the coast, you'll find nearby the medium-sized town of Wonthaggy. Originally known for its coal mining, now it's the largest town in South Gippsland with tourism and farming. The land of the Boonarong and Boonarong of the Kulin Nation. It's the home of long-time activist Jessica Harrison and since moving there she's been active in many ways, which we'll hear about in a moment. But first, Jessica, we're talking about present-day activism, but Wanthagi has a proud Melton history, doesn't it? Yes, well, Wanthagi began as a coal mining town and it continued that to be a, a, an important mine for the whole state of Victoria for 60 years. Part of the reason it was set up was to actually undermine the militancy of the New South Wales coal miners. So when it began, it became a centre of militant industrial unionism and in the 30s they would, well, would defend their own jobs when the management tried to put people off during the Depression. And um, they had a, an amazing five-month strike in 1934. Um, a local story on that is how the, um, they managed to sneak in dray loads of potatoes to help the miners who were having trouble feeding themselves because they were, of course, all out on strike. Then, of course, the government tried to do the sort of communist bogey talking about Red Wonfaggy. There are still people who live in Wonfaggy who are descendants um, of the militant miners. In fact, there are still a few people I've met in my time here who worked in the mines. 
And, of course, they're very proud of the history of Wonthaggi. We also have a few of the amazing cooperative activities which the miners took, um, organised, as well as, of course, working in the mines and having to take industrial action. And they organised, for example, a cooperative pharmacy. They actually started the hospital in Wonthaggi, which is, that just recently is being built. Um, an ex there's an extra wing being built at the moment. And then there was the beautiful cooperative bakery, which unfortunately in a, un it was demolished um, a couple of years ago. So the history is alive if you, can, if you look just below the surface of the, um, the sort of shopping malls and, and the superstores. So, yes, it's still alive and there's still that, that lively history and, and presence. What was the outcome of the strike? The 30s strike um, was successful to an extent, but the um, people still suffered by being victimised for militancy. In 1938, they won some safety standards after a six-week strike also, um, because, and that was in response to a disaster that took 13 miners' lives. And a film was made of it, wasn't there? Yeah, a couple of films have been made. The famous one, the one that everyone talks about um, fondly is Strike Bound, that has a really lively sort of emphasis on the sort of <laughs> the clever, the, the sort of innovative tactics people use. Like they were actually dealing with some scabs who'd been brought in, and while they were doing this, they were singing songs loudly, <laughs> in, and the, in the tradition of the. Uh, the Welsh miners, who always had a good for a song, they were um, they were covering the noise of other activities that were going on. Lots of, of the film was actually shot in Wonthaggi. There's also an interesting ABC um, program called Black Gold Kindred Spirits that talks about the militant history of Wonthaggi. Came out in the 90s. What took you to Wonthaggi, Jessica? A funny, yeah, a funny link to the history again because it was basically the offer of a free place to live for like basically the winter six months, which is at a place called Harmer's Haven, which was actually set up by one of the militant communists of the Union by the name of Eddie Harmer. I've actually met his son, who's actually quite old now. <laughs> so my friends had a holiday place there, so they said, yeah, well, you haven't got a place to live. Um, come down and live, because I've just come back from overseas. They said, come down and you can stay in our holiday house, which we won't be using over the winter. And um, then also the other attraction was a community, a cooperative community school had just opened up there in the old State Mines Hotel. That's the hotel that the miners would actually jump off the train and they'd come to the pub and have a place to stay, and then they'd ask around about what which mine needed work. So yeah, a little bit of history. We only used the ground floors of the of the, the hotel because the upstairs wasn't really usable. It's now a, a sort of expensive Airbnb, unfortunately. How long after that did you find out about the proposed diesel plant? It was. 2008. So I'd been there for about five years. It certainly was a catalyst for me getting to know a lot more people around the town because the community really rallied around that. Everyone from surfers to to retired people to teachers, people who just hated the idea of 
the coast being sort of turned into a, a huge energy-sucking desal um, plant, we can't really tell the impact, the environmental impact that the, that the um, plant is having right now because it's operating because, of course, the pipeline takes the waste out to sea where it also extracts the seawater. So we're a little bit in the dark about the sort of the, the knock-on damage that that, that plant's causing, but it certainly mobilised the community at that time. It also brought people from other communities into that fight, didn't it? Oh, yes. For example, the people up in Limbrook who were fighting the toxic waste dump who came down and spoke at our meetings. And, of course, the, the waste from the plant is still being trucked up to Lyndhurst and just um, you know, contaminating yet another area, not to mention just the increased traffic and so on. They have, you know, I should give them credit, they have revegetated the site. But, of course, um, we don't even know whether they would have done... I mean, that's one thing we think maybe if we hadn't kicked up such a fuss, it probably would have been a lot more of an outstanding blight on the coast. It's quite hidden because it's dropped, it's dropped down below, below the um, skyline. But, um, of course, that had its own problems because they were flooded at one point, which we thought was very ironic. And the use of energy in that place is horrendous, isn't it? That's right, yes. I mean, we're still paying for it. I mean, the state of Victoria is still paying for it and therefore um, everyone who pays tax in the state is supporting something which, as far as we're concerned, there are a lot cheaper ways to produce water and, you know, it's being called liquid electricity. Well, that um, description still stands. And... Uh, However, they like to big note themselves how, you know, on their promotional materials saying, oh, this is water, water source independent of whatever the rainfall is. There were other ways, always were alternatives, but unfortunately they decided they got conned, basically, and they they went for the desal, you know, they went the desal direction when they could have looked into it a little bit more carefully. Did this plant divide the community? Those oh, yes, certainly. I mean, for example, the caravan that we left on a, in a farmer's paddock um, with a no diesel slogan got um, shoved into the dam, for example. <laughs> um, yeah, at the time, I think it's to do with the fact that any kind of political stand causes people to be irate because a lot of people have been lulled into this passivity and lulled into a feeling that well, I suppose it's just a modern version of you can't fight City Hall. And so anyone who does make a stand, they feel as if they have to be pulled down, taken down a peg. Well, since then, there's a long list of issues that you've been involved with, Jessica, and still are. Let's begin with housing. What's the situation for housing for people on low incomes in the Wonthaggy area? Okay, well, it's not good, as in many rural areas and, of course, your Melbourne listeners will know it's not easy in the city either. The housing situation got very bad during the desal times, but that's about 10 years ago now. So um, during that time, no new public housing or affordable housing was built, apart from a couple, a little block where I actually do some cleaning, which is a nice example of a newly built um, project. So the old, the old public housing that was in the town has is sitting there and there are a few other houses which are sort of um, scattered through the town but um, 
no sort of project to try and actually cater for the fact that we're one of the, the fastest growing areas in the state. No project has actually taken that on board until uh, an announcement only a few months ago, which was that there would be a, a money set aside for social housing in Wonsaggi. Now, we know from... Oh, in Bass Coast, but of course Wonsaggi and Cowes would be the main towns that it, was built, it would be built in. So, of course, we're forewarned by the um, Defend and Extend Public Housing Group and the programs on 3CR that social housing is a very strange beast. And although it, it um, often means that people feel as if, oh, something's being done, they don't realise that social housing can, all, can just be like another form of commercial renting. And what we need is public housing, which is, is linked securely to people's income and can never be above 25% of your income. So we um, got going on that because in my involvement in the Wonsaggi branch of the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union, we had members who were living in a caravan park, which was sort of a catch-all for anyone who couldn't get rent a house. Um, they'd end up at the caravan park. So they were involved with the union, and so we were alerted to the fact that that caravan park was due for demolition. And now? And now it's been demolished. And so now people are sleeping in their cars or they're sleeping in empty buildings or they're camping. And this really alerted me to the fact that um, a lot of supposed environmentalists don't really care very much about the human causes for some of the environmental, minor environmental damage that happens through someone just setting up a camp in the bush. And it made me realise that the issues of unemployed action and housing are crucial to our survival. And if you can't get a place to live, you camp, and then someone complains that you've you've messed up their bushwalk, basically, by trying to live somewhere cheap. <laughs> and so the, those contradictions were really highlighted to me in, in the last couple of years with the housing problems that we have at the moment. And, of course, if you haven't got a decent place to live, you can't get a job. That's right. And you also can't get very minor things like a shower. I was talking to a, a guy who's homeless on the weekend and he, uh, he was saying, I just love a shower and there's the swimming pool, but, of course, it's shut because of the current lockdown. You know, So all those things that we do take for granted aren't there when you're homeless. And um, I've met an older woman who was camp, sleeping in a camper van and she preferred to sleep close to the middle of town because she felt safer, but she also had um, a lump of wood with her in case she had any trouble. So that's what people are having to live with. And as the guy I was talking to on the weekend said, it weighs you down. What's the unemployment situation in the area and what has JobKeeper done to help? The employment situation, I mean, we've got shops, we've got coffee shops, we've got one a fencing um, manufacturer, Cyclone Fencing, which gave a lot of people a start in their working, working lives. Then there used to be other industries. There used to be Smith & Nephew was here, and then the, but right now it's really gone down to, the, to just the retail side of things and the hospital. The hospital does provide work for people. So people who are new to town or people who are lower income, that people end up doing the sort of service industry stuff, the cleaning and so on. And um, yeah, it's not really good enough. People talk about 
you know, social enterprises and so on, but so far not, that hasn't actually happened here. But of course, the growth in the whole caring sector is definitely evident here because you have quite a large retired population. So that's what I've been doing, working part-time, taking people out for um, outings and cleaning and that kind of thing for them. So there are those jobs that they certainly keep you on your toes, <laughs> that sort of work, because it's last minute often. What about the payment for JobKeeper? Yes, that's actually helping some people. Some people I know are surviving on that with their small businesses, but um, unfortunately, as we know, the end of March is going to mean, if, um, if we can go by the current government statements, that that's going to cut. So the combination of any uh, um, rent moratoria um, also finishing in March and also any leniency to do with people's utility bills is also over at the end of March. Then JobKeeper being cut completely and JobSeeker being reduced once again, it's just, a, it's just a very stressful time for people and I don't really know yet the impact it's going to have on our town. Do you have community gardens there and places where people ah, yes. get food? Yes. I um, helped start a community garden in the centre of town. We're very proud of our um, our harvest centre and that also was great. During the lockdowns last year, we managed to keep it going by just having a couple of people, when the lockdowns were very strict like they are now, just having people come in one by one and just make sure that things were okay in the garden and that it was watered and so on. Then, as soon as the lockdowns lifted, of course, we were able to go back to looking after it. So that the system we use in the Harvest Centre is that everyone who works there can end up at the end of the day sharing out what we've grown. So that's a great way to get um, almost um, free locally produced organic food. Then the other community garden in Wonsaggi is on the edge of town and they supply their excess to the um, salvos who give out free food on a couple of day, times a week. So, yeah, there is definitely that potential. And there are a lot of lovely fruit trees growing on public land. So that kind of thing is really good. So at the beginning of the, lock, of the first lockdown, I started up this free food stall at the um, front of the community house. And so I've been doing that now for nearly a year, sort of every couple of days making sure it's got whatever fresh fruit and veg has been donated, making sure there are a few tins of soup and pasta and noodles and that kind of thing in the box. And, yeah, it's it's sort of, you never quite know who's getting it, but you know that it's gone when you get there. So, yeah, I'm glad that we've got that as well. And are these the issues that the Unemployed Workers Union are involved with? Yes. Well, of course, the big thing that takes up a lot of time if you're on a low income is just the day-to-day -day survival. So whether it's scavenging wood or sort of making do or asking a friend to sort of repair something rather than actually having the money to to pay for it. There's the, the food side of things. The As I said, the Salvos and the Anglicans give out food. But um, the other area that we deal with a lot is the whole punitive nature of the, the privatised job agencies, job networks, whatever you want to call them. It's the, it's the Job Active Programme. And so our local branch is very involved with just supporting our members when they have in their dealings with these job agencies, 
when we founded our branch four years ago, a woman came to the first meeting and she was bringing, she brought with her her oxygen supply. She had to apply for jobs while she carried her oxygen tank around with her. So that's just an example of how this system <laughs> treats people because there isn't sickness benefits anymore. There's only job active. So you have to be applying for those jobs even though you're not well enough to work. And it's going to go down the amount to about 40-something dollars yeah. a week. Well, I think um, my prediction is that they will do some kind of minor minor change, possibly extra $50 a week or something, so that they won't bring it right back to the previous old new start rate that hadn't been raised for 25 years. But even if they do that, that's still not going to help people with tenancies, for example, because you can't rent a place with the amount of rent subsidy which uh, um, the government makes available. So... That's why um, one of our members, I said, I just I saw him in the supermarket and I said, give me a quick quote because I'm on the radio soon. He said, you can either afford to live or you can afford accommodation, but you can't afford both. So, you know, it's, it's going to continue to be hard. And these job networks or job agencies, they are set up to every time they text you to hassle you about, you know, an interview or whatever, it's not an interview necessarily for a job. It's just an interview so that they can then fill out their stats about the number of people they've contacted in that week. They have a model for their business, which means that they've got to do maximum hassle for us or else they won't reach their targets. So this is, unfortunately, the system we're stuck with. And I could just imagine the difficulty of getting kids to school every day. Yes, and another thing that happens to people who are on um, Job Seeker is that they have to come in from out the outskirts of town or smaller uh, settlements to go to these interviews or possibly to be told that they've got to do a course, in, a computer course when they've got no aptitude or no interest in computers. So if you are working part-time, you still have to make yourself available for these, these interviews. And, of course, yeah, parents have to do parents next which is you've got to sort of justify your parenting techniques before you can get the parenting payments. So it's a whole industry in just making people's lives hard. And uh, it's punitive, you know. Most of the people who are suspended, for, um, and last week one of our members got their payments suspended, they're not suspended because you haven't taken a job or something. It's just because they sent you a last-minute message about an interview and you didn't get it, and then suddenly your payments have been um, cut. The other thing that we do know um, from our, um, our experts in the field um, that they are going to be renegotiating this whole contract with all the privatised job agencies, and that's going to happen in September, and we hope that we can bring enough attention to the fact that these, this system isn't working, but we may end up with a system that's even worse. <laughs> I know that protection of the environment's always been important to you, and you led a campaign over 10 years ago now to get Roundup away from the schools and other places. What's happening now with Roundup in country areas? The local councils um, do have the power to through their own contractors and workers to not spray it in certain areas. And so that 
that um, campaign that I was involved with did become policy for our local council, which was that they wouldn't spray near playgrounds, um, schools, etc. So that was a small victory. Um, and the interesting quote that came out from that campaign was that they thought that if they reversed that policy, they'd, they'd um, experience reputational harm. So the image of spraying poisons around schools and playgrounds, obviously, is, is not a good one. But there are a lot of other state government um, agencies, such as Vic Roads, that um, maintain the, the, some of, a lot of the roads in country areas, and they spray it around all over the place still. And you'll see it if you drive down a country road. It's all yellow around the posts that just mark the edge of the road, and that's more that's a lot of Roundup being sprayed. And it happens often in the spring, where there's a lot of spring growth of grass. You end up, I get a few phone calls from people who are, you know, trying to grow, say, organic food in their backyard or their front yard, and, and they are outraged that they were not consulted and that the poison was sprayed around. So it's an ongoing battle. And, yeah, um, the other aspect of it is that a lot of farmers are short of money, therefore they bring in these contractors who plant peas just as a cash crop. Then the workers come in to pick the peas, but they still want to spray the peas to stop pests. So those workers get often, you know, they have contact with the poisons. Finally, Jessica, you're planning for a week of protests in March. What's the foci? Okay, it's a week of action basically because of the cuts that we've just talk, been talking about to um, job seeker and also the punitive way that the job agencies work, as I've just um, explained. So it's, um, it's really to highlight the new lot of cuts and um, we're getting really interesting alliances with other groups who are going to be, we're going to be working with, people who are concerned about the latest minimum wage negotiations which are taking place but also people who, union members, who are unhappy about the privatisation of Centrelink and, um, of course, the younger unionists who um, are just coming in and, and fighting hard for sort of conditions for young workers. So really great to be, have, you know, building alliances and also probably making people aware of, as I describe, what you go through when you're and unemployed. So, yeah, it's a week of action starting the 15th of March and when things get a sort of program, more of activities, I'll have to come on your show again. Is the local media interested? The local media are great, actually, because um, we're a sort of source of their stories. They come down and take photographs of us at the community garden or they, when we do a protest about raising the rate of benefits, they'll come and take a photo. So, yeah. We've got the local paper, which has comes out with plenty of conservative views, but they also need copies, so they come to an independent um, online newspaper who also like to do in-depth stories. In fact, we've got one coming up about housing for that. There's a community radio, but um, it tends to not... I've ha I haven't had much to do with them, but they do say that they're interested in what we do, so... Next time we have a little protest, I'll be inviting them along. And then we have local, yeah, local sort of radio, more of a state radio that, that do give us help. So, yeah, not bad in that regard. <laughs> and, of right. course, we've got 3CR. Of course. All right. Well, I'll look forward to talking to you again, Jessica. 
Thank you. You're right. And thanks to Jessica Harrison. Tune in to Uprise Radio every first and third Wednesday of the month at 5.30pm on 3CR. With Jackson and James, we're bringing you the in-depth analysis of what's happening in the world all in just 30 minutes. You can listen live to air or you can find us on demand. 3cr.org.au. Stay tuned. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire, and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 Underman, this is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yarrow country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. For many years, Kate Lewis has been part of Tuesday Home Time, representing the Australia Western Sahara Association. Kate's enjoying a well-deserved retirement and has handed over the reins to Dr Randy Irwin as editor of the AUSA e-Bulletin. I spoke with Randy just prior to the anniversary of the Western Sahara Independence Day on the 27th of February 1976 and asked her if she could introduce herself and her interest and actions in supporting the people of Western Sahara. My name is Dr. Randy Irwin. I'm a casual lecturer at the University of Newcastle, an anthropologist by training, and my research has been with Sahrawi refugees in the refugee camps in Algeria. So I've long been interested in Western Sahara, the use of natural resources in Western Sahara, and the ways in which Sahrawis from the refugee camps have sought to challenge Morocco's resource extraction. How did you get started? That's a great question. I first learned about uh, Western Sahara while I was actually studying abroad in Morocco in the mid-2000s, and I became really interested in it when I conducted an interview with someone who participated in the Green March, which was the march that led Moroccan civilians into Western Sahara as part of Morocco's attempt to claim the territory for the crown. And when I did that interview, the way in which the participant spoke about his role in Western Sahara struck with me, and it really stayed with me. And 
I went to grad school and decided that the project that I wanted to work on was uh, Western Sahara. I started the project right after the Gademizik movement and was really interested in raising awareness of Saharawi refugees who I thought were frequently lost in the discussions of Western Sahara. What did your conversation with the Moroccan ring a bell, did it? An alarm bell? We had a conversation and he talked about what he thought he was going to receive from the Green March and it's been a very long time since we had this conversation now, 15 years, but I just remember being struck by it because the way in which he talked about his role was a little bit different to the sort of idealized historical event that you usually get in the context of Morocco. Because within Morocco, you can't really talk about Western Sahara as Western Sahara. And for him, he talked a little bit about sort of what he thought was going to happen, what he you know, what he sort of expected to see there. And it just, it wasn't quite what he'd anticipated. And yes, so it just sort of stuck with me because we were having a conversation about an event and a place that was usually passe to talk about. What was the the general knowledge of that issue when you were talking about it? Well, I think in general, the United States, there wasn't a huge awareness around Western Sahara itself and the conflicts in Western Sahara. Morocco and the United States have a very long diplomatic history, and Western Sahara usually drops out of any sort of conversation around Morocco. So I remember being surprised when I first learned about Western Sahara, and when I took this on as a PhD project, I found myself frequently explaining Western Sahara, explaining the history, explaining the current circumstances every time I talked about my research. And that was in both academic circles and in, you know, regular conversations. So I think in general in the United States, there's not a huge amount of awareness over what's going on. Where did you go for your research? I spent time in the refugee camps in Algeria, in Tindouf. And then I also spent time in archives at SOAS, um, in London, doing that work as well. Were you surprised when you went to the camps to find out how basic people were living, conditions? I knew that I was going to a refugee camp, and I knew that I was going to a refugee camp that was long established. You know, when I got to the refugee camp for the first time, it was 2015, and Sahara was started fleeing Western Sahara in 1976. So the camp has been around for a long time, and it's also the base for the Sahrawi state in exile, the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic. I knew that it was a refugee camp, but I also knew that it was sort of a site of diplomacy as well, as Sahrawis like to talk about it. And so I don't know that I was surprised by the conditions. In some ways, I was surprised at the variation of dwellings. You know, Saharawis have been there for a very long time. The conditions in the Sahara Desert are very, very difficult for anyone. They're particularly difficult when you don't have electricity and you don't have air conditioning. However, I wouldn't describe them as, it's hard to say because people are struggling, but people are also they're well taken care of. They have 
made their way in the sense that they've made adaptations to their dwellings. They've come up with strategies to make their lives as comfortable and safe as possible. And so, you know, people are, people have solar panels, people have some clay mud houses. And so in some ways, you know, people are living a life. It's a life that is very much temporary in the refugee camp. So there's a real hesitancy to build infrastructure that's going to last because there's the hope that they will return home in the near future. The reality of that is that that hope has been going on for so long, but move forward to the end of 2020, there were a couple of disturbing happenings. It was reported that after nearly three decades of being forgotten, the Sahrawi people have run out of patience. Can you explain the consequences of the blocking of the ceasefire? Absolutely. So for a very long time, Sahrawi leadership in the Polisario have taken a strategy that aligns with the ceasefire and said to Sahrawi youth in the refugee camps, look, we're going to do this via diplomatic route. We are going to fight for independence via diplomacy. We're going to show that we're a good state and that we abide by international laws. And that has been the Sahrawi state in exile and the Polisario's strategy for gaining independence is to show a commitment to international law and to doing things, you know, quote unquote, the right way. To an extent, Sahrawi youth have sort of not had as much patience with that because they've only known life in the refugee camps. And for many of them, the war was ending as they were born. So they also haven't really lived through the war. And with Trump's announcement that the United States was going to recognize Morocco as sovereign over Western Sahara, that strategy of waiting and playing by the rules, playing by international law, is going to be much harder. Sahrawi youth in particular are going to push much stronger for a, a return to, to battle. I mean, we've seen the ceasefire fall out, but the implications that this might have for the future of the conflict, I think, are quite significant because now international law and the right to self-determination, the United States has put that into question. What does the United Nations say about the situation to do with Morocco and Western Sahara? The United Nations runs a mission for the referendum in Western Sahara, and the whole purpose of the UN mission is to bring a referendum in Western Sahara that would enable the people of Western Sahara to choose their future, to, to determine what happens next, whether that's sovereignty, whether that's autonomy, or whether that's inclusion in Jim Morocco. But as it stands, the United Nations recognizes Western Sahara as a non-self-governing territory, and it doesn't recognize Morocco as the administering power, which is really key here. And for a long time, the United Nations mission has sought to bring about this referendum, but they haven't been able to get both parties to agree on the terms. The UN position on that hasn't changed. They're still seeking a diplomatic end to the conflict and one that is premised on the idea of a referendum. It's not just Trump's announcement, though, is it? It's what Morocco did by building the road, which is against the ceasefire. That's right. So we, there are two separate events that have really come together to create a significant amount of tension in the territory. So Morocco was building a road via Gujarat at the border with Mauritania. 
And Saharis began to blockade it. Sahari civilians blockaded it. Now, that turned into conflict between the Moroccan military and Sahari civilian protesters that ultimately led to the end of the ceasefire as the Polisario military sought to defend the civilians who uh, were subject to Moroccan military forces. Part of the issue with the road um, that we see here in the blockading from Sahrawi civilians is that Morocco has long sought to build infrastructure in Western Sahara. So Morocco maintains through its presence 80% of Western Sahara right now. And in that 80% of Western Sahara, everything to the west of the wall that runs north to south of the territory, Morocco has constantly sought to build infrastructure projects. And one of the problems is that these infrastructure projects facilitate Morocco's continued presence in the territory and Morocco's continued ability to extract resources from the territory. And so Sahari civilians have sought to block that infrastructure, in part to maintain the integrity of their control over the natural resources and goods and services. Has Morocco in recent years increased the number of Moroccans going into the Western Saharan area and what consequences does that have? Yes, so there continues to be a number of Moroccans who move into Western Sahara. This has been an ongoing process since, since the ceasefire began. And over time, as Moroccans move into the territory, there becomes a, it shouldn't be, but it becomes more difficult to talk about the local population. So in the context of resource extraction, in the context of the referendum, we constantly see references to the people of Western Sahara. However, as more and more Moroccan civilians move into the territory, the ways in which the local population that's living in Western Sahara is configured becomes a little bit murkier. And so resource companies have talked about their consultation with the people of Western Sahara and the local population, but more and more that includes a greater percentage of Moroccans that are in the territory, as opposed to actual consultation with Saharawis who are in the territory, as Moroccans begin to, con begin to outnumber Saharawis that live there. With the current situation, how important is it that the UN hasn't reappointed an envoy to the area? I think this is an incredibly crucial time for the United Nations to appoint an envoy. The, the fact that there's not an envoy further shows the ways in which UN inaction and delay have shaped and facilitated what's been called a stalemate in the territory. And I, I'm not a huge fan of calling it a stalemate because I think there are always things that are happening in the conflict. But what we see here is a continued, a continued move to act without urgency in the conflict. And an envoy is really crucial to engaging both parties, to organizing information, to navigating through what's happened in the wake of both the ceasefire breaking and the United States' announcement. What's the situation of the breaking of the ceasefire on the ground? Is there armed conflict at the moment or is it threatened? There have been different instances of conflict. It's, it's really hard to provide good accounts of what's actually happening on the ground because of different media blackouts in the territory. So it's very hard to get real accounts of what's going on. And further to that point, the United Nations doesn't have a mandate to observe human rights violations in the territory. 
it's one of the only missions that doesn't have a human rights mandate, which means that we're also not getting a significant amount of reporting on some of these dynamics. We know that the Moroccan military has forced some Sahrawi activists under house arrest. So Sultana Hayar is under house arrest right now. So we're seeing increasing pressure put on Sahrawi activists as well. So it's it's hard to get good information coming out of Western Sahara at the moment, but we do know that there is conflict. It seems more and more like a, a David and Goliath situation with a heavily militarized Morocco and Western Sahara wouldn't have that many supporters worldwide who would help them in that area. So I think that's right. I mean, for a long time, the Polisario has been you know, perceived to be much smaller and less equipped. And when, when I talked to people about the war prior to the uh, ceasefire in 1990 and 1991, Saharis talked about their success in the war as being a product not of military might and force. We know that you know, the United States and France provided military support via arms for Morocco and via planes and things. But Saharis saw their battle as one that was facilitated by their deep knowledge of the desert and its nuances. So it was much more of a, a strategic strategy for them than it was of military might or muscle. On that note, though, I do think that it's worth pointing out that the Sahrawi state has more international recognition from about 45 different countries as sovereign than the than Morocco does as being sovereign over Western Sahara. It might not have the military backing, but it does have more political backing, and I think that's important to, to flag. What's been the reaction to what's been happening in Africa itself? It's a good question. Earlier this week, there was a solidarity meeting that was based out of South Africa that talked about a pan-African support for Saharawis and for their struggle for Western Sahara's independence, you know, full sovereignty. And so there is still considerable support. The Sahrawi state in exile is still a member of the African Union and member of the state. So it does have sovereignty in the eyes of the African Union itself. What's been the reaction of the Biden administration to this measure by Trump late last year to recognize Morocco over Western Sahara? So the Biden administration has been relatively quiet about its intentions. Right now, it hasn't reversed Trump's announcement. It said that it's, you know, looking into it. But earlier this week, a State Department spokesperson, when asked about the Biden administration's position on it, said that, you know, they were running an investigation into it and that the Biden administration supported the UN mission for the referendum in Western Sahara, which in and of itself is an interesting statement because the entire mandate for that UN mission is to bring about a referendum in Western Sahara. So we're left wondering what that means. Ultimately, maybe that tells us that the Biden administration is ultimately moving towards a return to a commitment to the referendum and might pull back. But we, we just don't know that yet. How close is the United States to Morocco 
in the 21st century. The United States and Morocco have long had a history of diplomatic support between the two countries. There's a legacy there around Morocco's recognition of the United States as sovereign that is constantly sort of pulled out. I think that there's there's a U.S. support there that is sort of historical in nature. What it means in terms of geopolitical assets to the United States today, you know, is, is a little bit less clear. We know that it's a key asset for the European Union um, in terms of migration and the ways in which the EU facilitates borders as it has two borders in the northern bit of Morocco with Ceuta and Melilla, which are both Spanish enclaves. So the European Union actually has a border in Morocco. But in terms of the U.S., I think what we've seen from the Trump administration is that Morocco plays a variated role, right? For a long time, it looked like the Trump administration was turning its back on Morocco. What about the two countries in the EU? We're talking about France and Spain. Have they made a reaction to what's been happening in the last little while? Yes, so Spain has recently issued an affirmation of its continued commitment to the referendum in Western Sahara. So they have not sought to back the Trump announcement at all. And what we've seen elsewhere is just the continued affirmation of a commitment to self-determination. So right now we're not seeing a huge indication that this will change for other countries. So what's needed is more pressure on the Biden administration to do the right thing. I think that's right. And I, I think that it's possible to build that pressure and to make the case to the Biden administration. We've seen bipartisan support in the Senate via the letter that came out last week. We've seen support from academics around the world, uh, from international human rights organizations. So we are seeing pressure building on the Biden administration. And the fact that we haven't seen a large number of other countries jump to support the U.S.'s position here is possibly indicative that we're going to see its reversal. I'm cautiously optimistic. And also pressure needed on the countries who are accepting the imports of goods from Western Sahara, which Morocco says that, oh, they come from um, Morocco, because there are a few countries who are benefiting from that, aren't there? That's correct. There are a number of countries that continue to benefit from the resources of Western Sahara. And there's been a long and steady campaign to bring awareness to those countries. So there's a fantastic campaign that's being run in New Zealand right now to raise awareness of the fact that New Zealand is receiving phosphate that comes from Western Sahara. Saharawis in the refugee camps and the Sahrawi campaign against the plunder have really focused on putting a face to those resources. And really clearly saying that they do not consent to the resource extraction and that they do not benefit from the resource extraction in Western Sahara so long as nearly 200,000 Saharawis are confined to the refugee camps. And I think continuing to show the human face to the conflict, continuing to show that these exports from Western Sahara deeply impact Saharawis is part of it. The other component has been divestment campaigns that have been relatively successful in getting companies to to leave. So we've seen pressure from Norwegian pension funds. And as companies have received that pressure, 
we've slowly seen some of them quietly leave the territory as well. Finally, Randy, the COVID-19 virus, how are the people in both the occupied territory of Western Sahara and also the camps in Algeria coping at the moment that you know of? So I think it's been incredibly difficult. What I know from the refugee camps and from a person who works in the health ministry there is that there have not been a huge number of case of positive cases in the Sahari camps. I believe that there have been three recorded cases. However, that's a product of the Sahari camps going into essentially a lockdown that, that prevents visitors from coming into the camps in order to keep Saharawis safe to stop the flow of international visitors to the camps. And so that's been a really important component of preventing the spread of COVID within the camps. And particularly in these refugee camps where a number of people have respiratory issues because of the climate of the camps. So people are particularly vulnerable. However, this has also had impacts in terms of the ways in which humanitarian aid comes into the camps and a lot of the solidarity effort that brings in support for Sahrawi families. So every year there are a number of events that are held in the camps. You know, there's a marathon that's run, there's an arts festival, there's a movie festival that bring visitors from all over the world into the refugee camps and where people are hosted by Sahrawi families, which brings in money for those families as well. And all of those sort of economic opportunities have sort of fallen out for Sahrawis with COVID. And that's I think we can't underestimate the impact that that's having on Sahara's daily life. In terms of COVID in the Moroccan-controlled portion of the territory, we know that there have been significantly more cases than there have been in the refugee camps. But we have to also recognise that people in Australia have in mind the people of Western Sahara, yeah. and there was an appeal to help them get some supplies, and it was a very successful appeal. That's right. In Australia, there's been a we've had a push that's been led by the Australian Western Sahara Association with help from AFIDA that has allowed us to raise eight thousand Australian dollars that will go directly to the refugee camps to help make up for some of the difference that um, Saharis have faced in following COVID. So we're hoping that this eight thousand dollars, which Australians have so generously donated will go a long way in helping Saharawis purchase sanitary items and necessary resources that they don't otherwise um, have the ability to purchase as the economic crisis also hits the camps. Thank you, Randy, and I hope to speak to you in, in the future and hope with some good news next time about the US decision on this. Yes, I absolutely hope so too. I'll look forward to our next conversation. I've been speaking with Dr. Randy Irwin, the new editor of the AUSA, Australia Western Sahara Association, eBulletin. Think again with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio. 855am on your dial and on 3CR digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us. 
like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. Hi, this is Renata from the IWD Collective. We're calling feminists of all genders and feminist allies. March 8th is International Women's Day and this year it's special as it's also Labor Day in Victoria and a public holiday. This year's rally in March will kick off at 2pm at the steps of Parliament House and then we'll make our way through the CBD to the State Library. Come early and be part of a momentous event. There will also be a limited after party at the Queen Victoria Women's Centre. See you there. A 3CR supporter. As we go marching, marching, we're standing proud and tall. The rising of the women means the rising of the song. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Time now for a session with Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. And Bob, first question is, what is synthetic biology? Synthetic biology is um, a whole new area of research. It, it does include genetic engineering, which of course has now been around for 30 years, and also gene editing, which came on the scene in 2013. Its significant difference is that it's a new development in genetic engineering in which completely new organisms that have never existed in nature before can be created from basic chemicals and DNA. In fact, taking the basic codes of life and just engineering them into new microorganisms, animals or plants. It's been thought about for quite a long time and it's been slow progressing, but suddenly it's um, starting to take off and CSIRO have created what they call a synthetic biology future science platform up in Brisbane and they're going for it. They've got lots of money. The latest thing is that they're of course trying to massage uh, public opinion as well. And of course the CSIRO is no longer a public company, is it? It's been privatised? Well it still um, I think does receive public money but it um, of course collaborates with corporations a lot. Yes, it looks for um, investments, particularly in basic research that they think will ultimately be able to be commercialised. Our government research institution does the basic research and then private companies come in through institutions like Ausbiotech, for instance, which is for the purpose of commercialising biotechnology innovations. Those companies then reap the big rewards at the end for research that we've done. These public-private partnerships usually end up being for the private benefit, really not the public benefit. So they asked over 8,000 Australians for their opinions on the future of synthetic biology-based solutions. Were you one of those 8,000 people? (laughs) No, I wasn't, no. (laughs) I'm sure that they did get some scepticism as well, though, but, of course, the media release that they put out last week saying that they'd done the opinion uh, polling and the research uh, was very upbeat. They were looking for support, really, although they did look also at the perceived risks of what people thought that the problems might be and also the level of trust that people might have 
but I, I guess at this stage, the main thing is that people know nothing about it. So whatever they're told by the CSIRO will, you know, have a good spin on it in order to get the right kinds of results. So CSIRO claimed in its media release that um, the Australian public was broadly hopeful, excited and curious about synthetic biology, which of course they would be because they didn't know anything about it. I gave them some examples. They used storyboarding in the uh, interviews to uh, give people an idea of what CSIRO was actually up to. And we could talk about some of those if you wanted to. They, they gave them seven different examples of what they're doing, uh, what kind of exciting new research they're engaged in. For instance, the hit one headline was Managing Invasive Pest Species. So there's a whole line of research in what's called gene drive research. And gene drives are um, a genetic construct where particularly de deleterious or bad genes can be driven through a whole population of organisms, whether they're animals or plants or indeed microorganisms, that are seen as troublesome. You can create a gene which will go through that population and render them either infertile or make them extinct. And so there's a lot of enthusiasm at the moment for doing uh, work with um, rats and mice, certain introduced pests of plants and animals, uh, particularly on offshore islands. And CSIRO has picked up that research. It's also being conducted down here at Geelong in the animal health laboratories down there as well under high security. Because, of course, things like rabbits, which Australia wants to get rid of, are not a problem in Europe where they're native animals and are kept under control by foxes and other predators and the ecology is in balance. But in Australia, they and cane toads and all the other feral animals like pigs and so on, camels, water buffalo, you name it, we've got it, goats. Syro is very interested in trying to find gene drives which they could put through these populations to either make them extinct or control them, but if these gene drives get overseas where the animals are native and they're essential for those environments, then of course you're going to create ecological havoc. And that was one of the concerns of the of the people that CSRO talked to was that there no be, be no um, environmental or public health impacts from any of the work that they were doing. People are certainly sensitive to the issues, but they're also, I think, at this stage, open to be convinced that CSIRO, which has a very high reputation as um, a public good researcher, that they would do the right thing, you know. So that's what they're really trying to convince the Australian public about. Another weird one was um, that they want to genetically engineer new corals and put them onto the Great Barrier Reef because the Great Barrier Reef and the Ningaloo Reef in Western Australia are dying from global climate change. They think that they can um, synthetically create new coral species and they can put them out there and then the coral reefs would be okay. This is the kind of, I think, rather bizarre and balmy ideas that, that are among the, the things they're proposing. Well, not only balmy, but surely risky. Oh, certainly. Absolutely, certainly. That, that is, that's the downside. The risks to ecology and to public health and safety are very real in all of this research. At the moment, of course, it's research on the laboratory bench in contained environments. But 
you know, once it gets out in the environment, that's when you really have to ask whether um, these enterprises, these research ideas are a good idea or just doomed to fail. I mean, human beings continue to make a disaster out of our management of the world. Every activity has um, its downsides and all that industry and government appear to be willing to look at is the benefits and their short-term benefits at that. You know, take the nuclear industry, for example, you know, a bit more electricity now and nuclear waste for the next quarter of a, quarter of a million years. You know, it's not a very good equation, really. And that runs right across these living organisms as well, because once we've created a new living organism that's never existed before and we put it out in the environment, there's no way known that we're going to be able to get it back into the, uh, into the laboratory or under any kind of control. Even something like the proposal to um, release the carp herpes virus, which is a, um, a natural virus naturally occurring uh, into the Murray-Darling has got a lot of thumbs down as well because uh, the impacts of even something like that are unknown and uh, even the short-term impacts of killing or uh, disabling tens of millions of, uh, of carp in your main waterway, leaving a huge uh, residue of dead fish uh, is being questioned as well. Biocontrol is a very vexed business and we've made a hash of it. We've really... Um, still continuing to allow invasive species into Australia through international trade and so on. Biosecurity's been upped as a priority, but uh, the money's been taken away from that again. We really aren't managing Australia very well at all. Even worse, people like the National Farmers Federation have got this wacky idea that um, we should almost double the output of Australian agriculture over the next um, 10 years so that in 2013 it would be worth $100 billion. So they've set themselves this dollar target without thinking what that means in terms of the soil ecology of waterways and what kind of farming we want, you know, because a lot of the inputs to conventional farming are becoming scarce or disappearing phosphates and, uh, of course, the oil on which that whole industrial system is based is going to become more expensive and hard to get as well. You know, the basis for all the synthetic chemicals, herbicides and pesticides that are sprayed is gradually disappearing and becoming scarcer and hard to get. We need to transition to new sustainable things, not be thinking about wacky biological high-tech as um, a solution to... Uh, our mismanagement of this continent. Well, Syro said this is an important first step. Where are they planning to go next? They're going to stay in their labs for the time being, but uh, who knows when they'll want to bring some of those things out into the environment. And the problem there is that um, the Australian regulators are being disabled at the moment. Deregulation uh, in Australia is going on apace. A lot of regulation of uh, all sorts of activities like agriculture, pesticides and veterinary chemicals, genetic engineering are being actively deregulated by the deregulation unit in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. And the power that goes with that, uh, taking the power away from state governments and from the community, is being invested in um, new federal government structures. Particularly, they've got this idea, another wacky idea, of setting up a series of commissioners uh, who would be like the czar of agriculture or the czar of pesticides and veterinary chemicals 
Um, this is being actively pursued by the uh, Morrison government. It's not good. I think we need a collaboration. And they've talked about this, of course, with the new national cabinet of collaborating with state governments. But the real agenda is to take away a lot of the uh, decentralised power in state and local governments, which are essential to the on-the-ground management of this continent. Uh, we don't want it all coming out of Canberra. And yet we've got um, this deregulation unit and a recent report by Peter Conran, which is um, going to speed this all up, is actually proposing the, the disbanding of a lot of ministerial forums, which are currently a backup to some of the worst decisions that the federal government makes. How does that fit in with the federal system of states and federal governments? Well, there are constitutional issues, uh, particularly on agriculture and veterinary medicines. We had a webinar with uh, uh, the um, civil society groups, had a webinar with a review that's going on of that at the moment. The chair of the committee, who incidentally has got conflicts of interest with his interests in the industry as well, was saying to us that, uh, because we were saying, oh, you know, the states won't necessarily agree with your plans for centralising power. And uh, his re reply to that was, well, we've already looked at that. We think we've got the power to do it, whether states agree or not. We'll see. I mean, in the past, through the Council of Australian Governments, of course, it's all been very pally, and the federal government has negotiated sweet deals uh, between itself and the state governments under something like, for instance, the Gene Technology Act 2000, which has been collaboratively regulating genetic engineering in Australia since uh, the beginning of the, the century, uh, was, was agreed and we were very engaged in, and involved in the establishment of that system as well. But now the feds obviously want to centralise power and they want to centralise power in order to uh, deregulate, so-called get rid of red and green tape. Uh, we know that's code for um, giving power and resources to corporations, particularly transnational corporations. Not only is the federal government subsidising overseas corporations uh, recklessly and <laughs> at our expense, but it's also not requiring a lot of them to pay any tax as well. It's a double whammy. We're giving away power and resources uh, for nothing, basically. Where does all this fit in with the food we eat? The Food Forum, which was the backup on the work of Food Standards Australia New Zealand, was one of the targets for the deregulation. Um, and there's a whole list of them covering a huge array of different um, forums in which uh, the federal and state governments collaborate. Anyway, the Food Forum met uh, on the Friday before last that was its last meeting. It wasn't flagged, it wasn't foreshadowed or anything, but in the communique in which um, they made a couple of rather foolish decisions, uh, they said, well, this is, um, that's the end of it, folks. Uh, this is our last communique. So I believe they will occasionally, in an emergency or some other ad hoc situation, uh, get together again and talk through the National Cabinet on food issues. But as far as having a regular review of what Food Stands Australia New Zealand is doing, uh, that really won't happen. And uh, I think this is what's going to unfortunately happen to a lot of the committees and a lot of the collaborative forums that were set up under the Council of Australian Governments, which is now defunct.
in favour of this national cabinet, which Morrison and the state premiers get to have a little chat to each other and uh, give a tick to all the all their pet projects without any real review or apparent discussion by the the officials, the bureaucrats who are actually the ones who uh, have to give uh, expert advice and make many of the decisions behind the scenes anyway. And there's another review, and that's the National Gene Technology Scheme review. What do they want for that one? Well, that's um, coming up for comment by the 17th of March, so we should alert your listeners. This has been going on now. The original um, recommendations were made in 2019, and this is the second phase of the review implementation phase. At the moment, they're um, developing or they're delivering, they say, more flexible, streamlined and risk-based processes that future-proof the scheme, enable efficiencies and relieve regulatory burden. Of course, they always leave the worst till the last because deregulation is what the whole thing is about, really. In the current review, we've been given two options to consider. Well, actually, three options. Option A is the status quo, and that doesn't write a mention at all. It's not presented as a real option. can't keep doing what you're doing because it's obviously unsatisfactory as far as they're concerned. Option B, propose what they call risk tiering. This is where they um, look at a genetic engineering project like those being done by the CSIRO in Brisbane, the new synthetic biology, and they'll say, uh, oh, that doesn't look like it's going to have um, many impacts or pose many risks or challenges, so we'll just regulate that through the low-level regulation, whatever we can get away with. Uh, we won't regulate that very much. And the same with the companies. If they can say, oh, we got an overseas regulator to agree that our um, new animal or plant or microorganism isn't very um, dangerous, isn't very hazardous, doesn't have many risks, you can, re you can manage the risks adequately and reasonably, then we'll give that more or less a free pass through the system. It's a very unsatisfactory option. But nonetheless, option C, it deals instead with pathways to, to the use of the product. That's code again. Uh, it's what the industry calls pathways to market. So they say, oh, we'll only invest in your research if you can show us that we've got a pathway to market for any product that might come out of the system. If you're going to give us hassles, we're not going to be able to market it, it's going to be rejected by the public, then we're not interested in putting uh, research and development resources into it. Option C is really a code for that. So they're going to classify what's happening, what's, what's being done by the researchers and the industry into three different categories. Contained dealings, that's anything that goes on in laboratories, will be contains, so uh, the OGTR, Office of Gene Technology Regulator, would leave most of that regulation up to the Institutional Biosafety Committees. An Institutional Biosafety Committee is an in-house committee with one public member on it that looks at uh, anything that a research institution is doing and usually gives it a tick. Um, then there's dealings involving the intentional release of a GMO into the environment. So if something's going to come out of a lab, that's where we come in, essentially saying, hang on a minute, stop. You've got to exercise precaution. Well, the precautionary principle is being written out of the legislation. 
as well, you know, that's weak and uh, not, not highly satisfactory either. And then we've got a whole new raft of things. Genetic engineering is being brought dramatically into the healthcare system. So anything that's cl clinical trials, like the testing of the COVID vaccines, any medical applications like genetic screening or so-called genetic therapy uh, or any therapeutic of that nature uh, will be in a separate category as well. And there, the Therapeutic Goods Administration will be the lead agency and the Office of Gene Technology Regulator will just be following up to deal with anything that happens to be genetically engineered. Again, we're in a rock, between a rock and a hard place, really. We're being offered two options, neither of which is really satisfactory. And we're going to have to try to, in the next couple of weeks, wade ourselves through the uh, 80 pages of documentation and try to come up with um, option D, which may be a hybrid of, um, of the other options, to see if we can rescue what's good about what's been happening at the moment, propose something as an alternative what the, to what the officials have come up with. Any help we can get from anybody out there in listener land will be much appreciated. Uh, it closes on Friday, March 17. Um, we're here to talk, and if anybody wants to engage with that, they're very welcome. Oh, or Facebook, or just give us a bell on um, landline here, 5968 2996. Um, we're around uh, every day during the week, so uh, it, and leave a message. If not, you know, we're happy to hear from anybody who's uh, concerned particularly about the synthetic biology and these new developments in the deregulation of genetic engineering, which, of course, has been going on <laughs> um, with agricultural and veterinary chemicals as well. And thanks once again to Bob Phelps, and we'll hear a little more about Bob on the program next week. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Now here's something different. The Heatherdale Bowls Club in Mitcham is offering tuition with equipment supplied for singles, couples and all family members to learn the game. You can play whether you are 9 or 90. It's fun and it's free. They are located in Heatherdale Road, Mitcham, just up from the Manhattan Hotel in a picturesque parkland area. Their website is hrbc.org.au or just ring Elise on 0409 258 645. That's 0409-258-645. A 3CR supporter. The current world in which the higher education sector operates is characterized by profit and power. And as universities are further incorporated into global neoliberalism, these ideas of the public good face the most serious threat that they have ever faced. COVID pandemic, besides highlighting all of the other fissures in society, has also really highlighted the terrible inequalities that have long existed within the sector. The precarity, the overwork, declining mental health caused by intensifying privatization and the privileging of profits at all costs, and students who should be our co-learners in this process face mounting debt. If this pandemic has done nothing else, it has shown us that this system in its current iteration is unsustainable. We have to organize and fight against it. There is no other way. There is no alternative to quote somebody who shall remain nameless. 
You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. A damning United Nations report on human rights violations in the Philippines wasn't enough for the UN to launch an independent probe. So a group of civil society organisations announced that they would begin investigating the issue themselves. Investigate PH, organised by the International Coalition of Human Rights in the Philippines, was formally launched and said it would release three reports to be submitted to the United Nations Human Rights Council. The first two reports will be released for upcoming sessions in March and July this year. I'm speaking with Peter Murphy, the chairperson of the International Coalition of Human Rights in the Philippines. First, Peter, as I said, the impetus for this independent investigation was the UN report on human rights violations in the Philippines. What did it contain and why didn't it go anywhere? The report was uh, issued by the High Commissioner for Human Rights in June last year, right at the start of the month. And I think it was June 30, she gave a formal speech to the Human Rights Council based on the report. It was really quite a, a good report. Uh, it had involved a lot of investigation by her own officers, plus they asked for submissions from civil society, which our network uh, for human rights in the Philippines put in. Plenty of organisations in the Philippines, of course, also put in submissions. So it was really quite a uh, well-documented, you know, there's lots of evidence. Uh, it was tightly argued, and she concluded that there was uh, systematic violations of uh, human rights in the Philippines and uh, that they offered you know, cooperation or support from the uh, UN Human Rights uh, Commissioner's Office uh, for things to be changed. But if, if there was no change soon, that other international accountability mechanisms should be applied. That was, a, that was the language used. But come September, October last year, um, it became apparent that there was really no follow-through on the report from member states that was adequate to <laughs> to what the report had said. So uh, the, this report had, had arisen because of a resolution uh, in 2019, and uh, that was really driven by Iceland, uh, of all countries, very far away from the Philippines, and... Uh, it had uh, done a, a very good job, its delegation, in, in mobilising support. And it was an unprecedented thing, to, I think, for the Human Rights Council to do, to vote. It was quite tight. There's like eight, it was 18 votes in favour of getting uh, the High Commissioner to do the report and 14 against. Most were abstentions. So there was really only a few votes in it. But in 2020, Iceland wasn't in a member state of the Human Rights Council anymore and no other state stepped forward to pick up the mantle. And so the Philippines government saw this vacuum and stepped forward and basically put forward a resolution themselves, which really was a total whitewash, more or less patting them on the back for doing such a good job in upholding human rights in the Philippines and 
asking for money from uh, the UN to help uh, train their police and uh, uh, other judicial institutions and so on. There was pushback against that. Some of the worst aspects of that resolution were changed, but, but essentially it's still basically a pat on the back to the Philippines government for its fine efforts to uphold human rights. And because of that, uh, the Civil Society Network, which is really the our ICHIRP or International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines, decided we should try to generate an independent investigation in any case and do what the council should have done and maintain the momentum for change in the Philippines situation. By December, we had managed to get quite a few very eminent figures uh, to be on this new commission we, we instigated and uh, a number of people to be what we call sub-commissioners who had some more time to put into the investigation activities itself. The first sort of set of cases was defined. 39 cases were seen as sort of uh, examples of a range of the most egregious abuses and also demonstrating the failure of the Philippines' uh, own institutions to genuinely address these problems. So of those, there were 10 chosen for more focused hearings. So we had a, we had two online sessions two weeks ago uh, about uh, these the details of these cases, hearing the witnesses, which were general, generally the parents of people who have been killed or the spouses and so on, and listening to what had taken place and asking questions. Very soon, we're going to have a report which would be able to be presented on March 15, so just two weeks from today, to the Human Rights Council in Geneva. The Human Rights Council is now in session through to, I think, March 18. So that's that's how it's come about. It's a, it's a sort of combination of a quite an important event in the Human Rights Council last year, then a setback, and then our, our determination to, to not let this opportunity fade away. Is it the member states of it that have the control to say yay or no? That, is that the problem? I don't think that's a problem. That, that's the sort of reality. You know, it's, uh, the United Nations itself is a, a body of states, so governments provide the ambassadors there and it's government policies which are expressed in the votes there. Uh, the Human Rights Council is 47 of those states, so it's not, it's not uh, even half of the member states of the UN, and, and there's a rotation of these states in the council. So Australia is on the council at present, and uh, Australia voted the right way uh, on these resolutions we're talking about on the Philippines, thankfully. There is a grouping of states which uh, are allergic to international criticism, so they are indiscriminate in voting against any critical assessments of any other state, whether they're well-founded or not. This includes you know, countries like uh, Venezuela, Cuba also, but it also includes like similar states in, in ASEAN, which are authoritarian and dictatorial. They, as a bloc, uh, I think are quite opposed to human rights really having any legitimacy in international affairs. Russia and China, big states, who don't want criticisms of their internal affairs aired at the, at the Human Rights Council. And they have quite a bit of sway themselves, diplomatically speaking. So, but on, on the other hand, um, there's uh, a majority of the states do seem to want to uphold 
the importance of international law uh, for all states to abide by, and including international humanitarian law. You know, it's still a, a very positive venue for really important problems to be addressed. And uh, so I wouldn't sort of discount it entirely, uh, even though, you know, it's got those problems that I've just described. Just going back to the independent investigation, can you tell us the width and breadth of the commissioners that you've chosen? Yeah, well, we, we asked for volunteers, so we, it's not a matter of choosing. Uh, they include church figures, trade union figures, uh, lawyers and politicians. So I think Australia is actually playing a good role in this because uh, we've got uh, the only sitting member of a, of a parliament uh, is Senator uh, Janet Rice from the Greens. She's the Greens foreign affairs spokesperson, so she's on this commission. Uh, Ex-Green Senator Lee Rhiannon is also on it. We have uh, an archbishop from the Old Catholic Church in the Netherlands who's a member of the Central Committee of the World Council of Churches. His name is Joris Verkamen. We have Dr. Susan, Reverend Dr. Susan Henry Crow, who's the General Secretary of the Church and Society Board of the United Methodist Church. She's based in Washington. The Reverend Michael Blair, who's the General Secretary of the United Church of Canada. Dr. David Edwards, who's the General Secretary of Education International. So that's the sort of trade union peak body in the world for teachers. In the lawyers area, we have uh, the president of the International Association of Democratic Lawyers. That's uh, attorney Jean Myra from uh, New York. Uh, another attorney from New York is Susan Adderley. Uh, she's the president of the National Lawyers Guild of the United States. And uh, we have a, a prominent lawyer from Belgium. His name is uh, Dan Boleyn. And uh, so he's he's from a, a prominent law firm called Justice Lawyers there. Uh, as well, uh, we have the moderator of the Central Committee of the World Council of Churches, uh, Dr. Agnes Abouam. She's from Kenya. So you can see we, we've got a you know, very powerful presence of the Protestant Church globally, actually, in this commission, and uh, significant global union and legal people. We're looking for more, and I think as we produce this first report, I think it will demonstrate to people who we've been approaching that uh, you know this is a good project to support and, and they can help. Uh, to say that on, on the subcommission level, we have um, I've left out one other person actually from the, from the commission. Is it's a Reverend Dr. Chris Ferguson? He's uh, the General Secretary of the World Communion of Reformed Churches. Um, he's a Canadian also, uh, based in this role he's got now. And in the uh, sub-commission level, we've got another Australian. It's Mark Zernzak. He's from the uh, United Uniting Church in Australia, Victoria and Tasmania Synod. He's their leading social justice advocate. <clears throat> well, I think it's called senior social justice advocate. We have a, another American uh, church figure, Derek Duncan. He's from uh, the United Church of Christ of uh, USA a member of the National Council of Churches in Korea, Reverend Kim Minji, it's a woman, and also we have Senator, former Senator Claire Moore from the Australian Labor Party taking part at this level as well. You can see it's quite a, a powerful bunch of people and I'm really proud to be you know, working with them on this project. You said, Peter, that you've had two online sessions so far. 
how easy or difficult is it to get witnesses to talk to you? Probably it is difficult, um, but um, I'm not really aware because I'm not in the Philippines, uh, you know, of the uh, negotiations around this. But, you know, there's a lot of danger in the, in the Philippines. There's no doubt that people had to take some precautions. And, of course, we've also done the proper thing of uh, ensuring that all of the witnesses gave full prior informed consent you know, to be involved in these hearings. That's, that was all done. You know, there's a sort of warfare, we call it lawfare, I guess, in the Philippines. So there's even recently been cases, you know, where people who have suffered terrible torture and have given statements to lawyers have been forced to recant the statements and even, you know, allege the lawyers bribed them or threatened them or something, you know. So um, the lawyers in the, in the human rights area in the Philippines are also very much exposed to danger. Um, in their work. Yeah, we've done our best, the best we can to ensure that everybody is fully aware of the situation and is, is provided uh, support to cope with whatever stresses come on from doing this. And I could imagine also the, the stress and the, the trauma for the people listening to these testimonies. Well, you, you know that uh, when somebody's recounting something that they, they saw some traumatic event, they, that it, it's traumatising. And so Yes, I think um, it's very challenging, I think, for all of us when you you hear, um, you're watching, you know, a mother talking about her son whose you know, bullet-riddled body was found days after he disappeared or uh, a woman whose husband was shot dead in front of her. She's trying to say what happened. It's very hard. Uh, the first report goes in a couple of weeks. What happens to that report? It's a little bit hard to tell. But it goes to um, Michelle Bachelet, who's the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, and her office, we know, is very much concerned to pursue the situation they've uncovered in the Philippines. So I think it will give weight to a discussion she will have with various delegations or ambassadors there in Geneva about what to do next. In this year, 2021, there's, there's this session of the Council. These are regular sessions. There's three per year. So the second one is uh, in June and uh, the third one is in September, October. So by September, October, we will have presented three reports in writing providing you know, the detailed evidence of many cases and demonstrating the, the failure of the Philippines government to uh, protect its people's basic rights. So we, we're hoping that by the time Michelle Bachelet gives her, her own speech directly on Philippines in September, that there'll be a different balance in the whole council, uh, more in favour of uh, a more determined action at, at the international level. Be sure, but uh, exactly what will happen. But I think you know by doing what we're doing, we're certainly providing the opportunity for a better. Uh, approach to be taken. And also, you know, we're going to provide these reports to the International Criminal Court, which is a completely separate process. The ICC is based in The Hague in uh, the Netherlands. In, it's on the cusp of deciding whether a preliminary assessment of, you know, what they've been told about the war on drugs in the Philippines and other uh, abuses of human rights provide enough basis for a formal investigation run by the ICC Prosecutor's Office. They said in, I think, early December that 
they would uh, make a decision in, about that in the first half of 2021. So that's within the next couple of months. So we're hoping that our first report will influence them for the better and you know, to make the, the matter more urgent. We hope that our subsequent reports will also add to whatever investigation we hope they then undertake themselves. You know, that's another level of international accountability that should be applied to the Philippines, like other situations around the world, and we we think we're making progress there. And as well as that, when when any of these sort of high-level institutions make a formal finding or a statement about the reality in the Philippines, that should trigger congressional or parliamentary processes around the world whereby you know national government policies are not to you know provide uh, funds to mass murderers egregious violators of um, the international law so we we're hoping that this will gradually apply more and more pressure for change on the Philippines government you know, mentioned that a number of the commissioners are from churches around the world What's your connection with the churches within the Philippines? There's uh, our partner, so the international coalitions in the Philippines is called Voice, which is uh, a grouping of a human rights institution called Karapatan, a the National Council of Churches of the Philippines. I think they're the two key ones. So it's, you know, the church, especially the Protestant churches in the Philippines, experience a lot a lot of pressure from the government that is they, they themselves are being targeted um, by this use of force by the government and uh, threats of force so they are you know really anxious also that their their sister churches around the world are aware of this and and provide some help to them to protect them whenever i've visited the philippines which I i'm not able to do anymore but i've done it many times in the past the Catholic Church also and, and the Protestant churches are prominent, you know, grassroots level in asserting the rights of farmers or workers or women, um, indigenous people and so on. You can be aware, especially with the Catholic Church in the Philippines, that it's very conservative and doesn't always respond properly, but at the lower levels, many priests and uh, nuns and so on are really very, very concerned with what's happening and they're very close to the people. People like me visiting will, will run into them, for sure. I'm sure that the Duterte regime is well aware of that this inquiry is going on. Has it made any difference to the level of human rights abuses in the Philippines? I'd have to say that the, it has, you know, the government of the Philippines is responding to all of these pressures, including our activity, but its response is a sort of truculent abuse. In its own fact, the uh, level of uh, repression uh, and outrages against people's basic rights uh, expanding, accelerating, getting worse. It's actually worse, Jan, than it was six months ago. And I, I can see it's getting worse, you know, even as I'm talking to you now. It's, it's a sort of, um, you know, I, don't, I can't quite get the right adjective to describe Duterte's personal attitude, but I think much of this is, is coloured by his personal attitude, which is one of up yours to anyone who criticises him. And the price of this is, is you know, human lives and, and, and terrible stress in the communities around his country. I could just say that yesterday um, I, I received a copy of a formal document, just a one-page document, a resolution of the 
Regional Law Enforcement Coordinating Committee of the Cordillera, that's a region in the northern part of the Philippines, basically police and uh, government officials. Uh, and so they actually carried a resolution calling for a purge of any, this is the words, any left-leaning person employed by the government or in other organisations in the Cordillera that they be subjected to what they call a tokhang campaign. So tokhang is a, a sort of slang or a shortened version of two words in Tagalog for knock, knock, ask, ask. But unfortunately, tokhang is actually the description of the war on drugs. So it's really kick the door in and shoot every, everybody in the Cordillera who's said anything mildly critical of government policy will be today, you know, trying to figure out how to evade the tokhang how to cope with what's coming. There's really no legal basis for this type of decision to be made. It's already a, a sign of a dictatorship because everybody is free to have their uh, personal opinions and to speak and to form associations and so on. But somehow or other, the, these officials have decided that they can label anyone like that as actually uh, an armed rebel, a terrorist, uh, or a supporter of terrorists, and they are legitimate targets for force. Yes, I, I'm really fearful of you know how things are going to unfold in the next few months. The Cordillera is a significant region, of course, of the Philippines, but these sort of things, if they start in one region, it's like a pilot project. It'll be rolled out in other regions of the country. We've seen this sort of thing in Negros already. Um, throughout uh, the last two years and it's, as I say, it's becoming more systematic and escalating. So there's just one, one other bit of news I got yesterday too. At the same time, uh, I, I think I've told you about the, the killings of uh, Indigenous leaders in the, the island of Panay, which is in the mm -hmm. sort of islands in the centre of the Philippines. So there were nine people killed in this type of kick the door in and shoot operation at the end of last year and 16 were arrested. Now one of the local government units, the smallest local government unit is a barangay. Uh, the barangay chairperson, one of these areas where four people were arrested on charges that they had weapons and explosives, uh, it was a woman. Her name is Julie Katamin. She refused to endorse the statement of the police that uh, these weapons and, and hand grenades were found in these four people's houses. She, she was threatened, and then yesterday she was shot by police. She was badly wounded, but she died by yesterday evening. She was dead. You, know, you can see what happens. That's an elected person who told the truth and stood up for her, her people, and so she was executed. As I say, it's getting worse. It's getting worse. Our, our response has to be not to be intimidated, um, not to be defeated by this, you know, escalating force uh, that's applied against the people, but to, you know, really focus, continue to put out the message, and maximise what we can do at the at the global level, where this really needs an international response. We're seeing international responses to other really bad things like the coup in Myanmar events in Hong Kong and, and, and other parts of the world, but this is as bad as that. There isn't, isn't the same level of response yet, so we, we have to generate it. Finally, Peter, you've told me in the past that you've contacted the Australian government through DFAT to try and get the situation changed with the, the 
the military aid and others that the Australian government gives to the Philippines regime. Have you had any contact with them recently? Um, I'm just sending them, you know, letters whenever we produce them about those this sort of incident I just uh, relayed to you now. That'll be the next one that goes to uh, the foreign minister's office. Yes, yeah, so we, we've been repeatedly asking for suspension, review, cutting, uh, cancelling, whatever, of the military aid um, because it's obviously being abused. We're getting, you know, like the, you get the bat, the straight bat back from the government that, uh, oh, we have a long and complex uh, relationship with the Philippines uh, and that's the way they always find a way to say, no, we're not changing anything. I think the, the, the government made a big mistake uh, last year in uh, stating that they had helped to draft the new anti-terrorism law in the Philippines, that they thought it was a really good law and uh, they were going to continue to help the government of the Philippines apply it. Questions have already been asked about that in estimates. Uh, Senator Janet Rice did that uh, recently. The Sydney Morning Herald picked that up and reported the, the, huge, the huge contradiction there that Australia's been playing that kind of role um, when you know, the, the government of the Philippines is using this so-called anti-terrorism law really to crush normal political criticism. You know, we, we think that'll, that will continue to be amplified in the Senate estimates coming up in the week of March 22, so pretty soon. And by that time, our report will have been published as well. So we're hoping that either Labor or Greens or both in the estimates will be able to ask questions that put some pressure on the government to really reconsider its current role in the Philippines. Perhaps I could talk to you after that, Peter. Yeah, yeah. There'll be, there'll be um, more developments for sure in this next few weeks, Jan, and uh, I think uh, towards the end of March would be a good time to, to see what happened. Thank you again. Peter Murphy, the chairperson of the International Coalition of Human Rights in the Philippines, and as Peter said, we'll hear more from him at the end of the month. And that's all from me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock, but do stay tuned for Done By Law. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.